Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In our last audio, finishing up Luke chapter 13, we talked about how Jesus healed a crippled woman on the Sabbath in a synagogue, crippled for 18 years with a demon, and then he repeated the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven to encourage his disciples to let them know that the kingdom is going to spread all throughout the world. And now we have a switch, and then after that, according to the Gospel of John, assuming Robertson's harmony is correct, Jesus goes down to Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication, and he openly says he was the Messiah. Then he left there and headed to Perea, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, outside of Jerusalem. And so begins the section which Robertson calls the later Perean ministry. He withdrew from Jerusalem to Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is in Perea. This is in John 10, 40-42, a brief mention there of what he did. And then we now start in verse 22 of Luke 13. Jesus is now in Perea as he's heading back toward Jerusalem in order to die. And he is warned against Herod Antipas, that fox, by a Pharisee. So we begin in Luke 13, verse 22 through 35. Reading the first three verses, 22 through 25 in Luke 13, we read this. He went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. So you see he's on his way to Jerusalem, having left there, gone through Perea, and then he's going back to be crucified. Verse 23, Lord, someone asked him, are there few being saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer you, I don't know you or where you're from. Now, there's no parallel passage to this event, according to A.T. Robertson. The NIV Study Bible says that this Perean ministry began somewhere between Luke 11.1 1 and Luke 13.21. So it's really hard to see exactly where the break went from the Judean ministry to the Perean ministry. But at any rate, the NIV Study Bible says that this Perean ministry is recorded starting right here, Luke 13:22 to Luke 19:27, and in Matthew 19:1 to Matthew 20:28, 20, and Mark 10 and John 10:40 through 42. So there seems to be a good deal of, of agreement as roughly that the Perean ministry starts right about now. Now, the NIV Study Bible says that while Jesus was in Perea, he had his thoughts constantly on Jerusalem, and you'll see that as we go through this passage here. Jesus knew that he would die there in Jerusalem to take on the sins of the world, and that's what he's thinking about. Now, someone came up to him and said, are there few being saved? Well, who was that? It's probably not one of the disciples, John Gill says, and I'll probably agree with that. I would agree with that. Here are some options as to the motives of the questioner. Adam Clark says it was impertinence. You know, maybe poking fun at Jesus. You know, you just got a little few people here. But the problem with that is, is there were a lot of people following Jesus. A lot of people were worried about it, including Herod Antipas. I don't think that's it. Could have been he was just curious. But again, you have the problem is, why does he think there are few being saved? Well, I think it could be he might have gotten the idea from the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, according to John Gill, which Jesus had previously spoken, that the kingdom had started out small in those parables. Or another reason why he might have asked the question, he might have noticed the large crowds, but that amongst those large crowds, very few were actually loyal to Jesus. That's what the NIV Study Bible says. Well, Jesus answered him, and he, was, he basically answered him, as we'll see here, that, sure, the way is narrow. The crowds of people who are being saved are small for the Pharisees. There are very few of them that are getting saved, but it didn't mean that there were very few getting saved as far as people who really believed in him. And I think there's your answer right there. 
And the man who asked it might have actually been a Pharisee who says, hey, the only few people being saved, you might have been few of us, few Pharisees being saved. At any rate, Jesus addresses himself to the, to the Pharisees here. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. There's going to be a time, at some time in the future, when the door's going to be shut to you. So you better repent. That's basically what he's getting at. And the narrow door, of course, is through Jesus, not through keeping all your stupid man-made traditions. Now, this idea of entering through the narrow door, in my opinion, is too often misinterpreted. The mustard seed and the leaven teach that there will be gazillions of people in the kingdom as the mustard seed grows. So people today in the year in the 21st century who say, well, see, there are just going to be a few people who are saved and there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and there's going to be a great apostasy and people will fall away and people will hate mothers and fathers. And, and they go talking about all this stuff that Paul was warning Timothy of. They apply it to the future and say, well, there are very few people going to get saved. That is a defeatist mentality. We need to have the attitude that gazillions of people are going to get saved as we preach the gospel. It was very few of the Pharisees who were going to get saved back then in Jesus' time. The idea that very few are saved, the door is narrow in the future, completely contradicts the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. They teach that a lot of people are going to come in. But that parable also says at the very beginning the kingdom is small. Very few people are entering, especially the Pharisees and Sadducees. Not only are they not believing, but they're keeping other people from believing. So there were very few people who came in. At that time, Jesus is now not emphasizing the largest of the kingdom of the, of, at this point, as he did with those parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. He didn't. He might not have wanted to lead the questioner to a false sense of security by saying, "Oh, don't say this. The way is narrow. There's plenty of ways to get into the kingdom." He was probably telling this guy, who I suspect was a Pharisee, he's probably telling him, "The way is narrow, and it's not through the way of the Pharisees. It's through the door, me, Jesus, and the door is narrow for you people." The questioner might have probably thought, as John Gill points out, that all Jews were automatically in the kingdom on the basis of their status as Jews. All Jews believe that, and Jesus is saying, no, no, that's, that way is too wide. The way is narrower. You've got to believe in me, regardless of whether you're a Jew or not. So the narrow way is the way of Jesus as opposed to the way of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the way of Jesus was opposed to the accepted Jewish way of salvation. Those Jews and Pharisees were knocking on the door in this little parable. They were crying, open up, open up. Why were they saying, open up, let us in? They were thinking, we're of the kingdom, we're Jews, we're good Jews, we're good Pharisees, let us into the kingdom. And then the master of the house, i.e. God, is going to say, I don't know where you are or where you're from. Now this idea of go away, I never knew you, is scattered throughout the scriptures in Matthew 7, verse 22 through 23. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So obviously there were some hypocrites back there tagging on to Jesus and batting on to Jesus' name and even driving out demons in his name, but they didn't believe in him. They were even saying, I will do a miracle in your name. I'll prophesy in your name, which is amazing. People doing that kind of stuff in the name of Jesus, and they don't really believe in him. And then to the, in the parable of the five foolish virgins, the bridegroom who represents Christ said to those virgins, I assure you, I do not know you. So this idea that the Jews thought they were saved automatically and Jesus is saying, no, you're not saved automatically, it's all through the New Testament. By the way, I said that homeowner that shut the door against the Pharisees was God the Father. It could be Jesus. The, the, the parable doesn't really make it clear. John Gill says it was Jesus. Let's move on to verse 26 and verse 27 of Luke 13. 
Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence. The then, I'm assuming, is at the final judgment. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you workers of unrighteousness. Now, when the Pharisees said, we ate and drank in your presence, that was true. Jesus did do that. In the house of Simon the Pharisee, remember when the sinful woman, who was probably a prostitute, anointed his feet with with oil and then washed, well, first washed his feet with her tears and then anointed his feet with her, with oil and then washed his feet with her hair. That was in the house of a Pharisee. And then a house, in the house of another Pharisee, remember who complained that Jesus hadn't washed his hands and Jesus said, you stupid hypocrites, you worry about the outside of the cup, but don't you worry the filth and the crap that's inside of the cup. So yeah, he did. Those Pharisees ate and drank in his presence, but what good did that do to them? I mean, they were constantly fighting Jesus whenever they turned around. And then this guy say, you will say, you taught in our streets. Yeah, yeah, Jesus was a rabbi that taught in the streets of Jerusalem and in the streets of the villages of Israel. And at every step of the way, he was opposed by you Pharisees. And so why do you think you're going to get led into the house just because you're a Jew? Luke chapter 13, verse 28 through 30. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place. When you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Note this, some are, who, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Now here Jesus is referring to the Pharisees' exclusivity, how they excluded the Gentiles from the kingdom of God, and says, no, only us self-righteous Jews are going to get in the kingdom, and Jesus says, no. Not only are you going to see the early Jewish prophets there, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets, they're going to be there, but you guys are going to get thrown out. And then he says, they are people, as NIV has it, people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. That refers to people from all four corners of the world, which of course are Gentiles, those nasty dogs, Gentiles, who a good Jew would not even consider not even the early Christian Jews could consider that they would be in the kingdom. And when Jesus says some are last who will be first, that will be the Gentiles. And some who are first, that's the Pharisees and the self-righteous Jews, some who are first, they're going to be last. In other words, they ain't getting in. So here we have the universal universality of the gospel is emphasized. Remember in Matthew 28, the Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, not just the Jews, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, all the nations. Now notice that Abraham's going to be at this this banquet. Of course, this is a symbol of fellowship with God in the kingdom of God, and eating is, of course, the, the ultimate symbol of fellowship, especially in that Eastern culture. And at this banquet, you're going to see Abraham. Well, that means Abraham was saved. That means Old Testament believers got saved by faith. That is a, That's an old theological problem that a lot of people had. I had it for years. Well, how are people saved in the Old Testament because Jesus hadn't come yet? Well, he had faith. He, Abraham believed and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. Galatians 3.9 very clearly through the words of the Apostle Paul state that Abraham was a believer. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, comma, the believer. Abraham, comma, the believer, Paul calls it. So Abraham believed. He's going to be at the banquet. The Old Testament saints are going to be there, folks. They believed in God, so that basically they were believing in Jesus, except they didn't know who he was yet, but they understood that the sacrifices and all looked forward to God, and they did what God told them to do and so forth. And so they got the advantages of salvation in arrears, I guess, if you want to put it that way. 
before, before it even happened. Well, they got them in advance, maybe. I guess you should say they got, them, they got the benefits of salvation in advance. Now, they reclined at table. Of course, this was the posture of the ancients at meals. The thought of these people from the north, east, south, and west, the Gentiles eating with the Jews, goes directly against the notions of the Jews who thought it was a crime to sit and eat with a Gentile, as you probably well know. Let's quote Acts 11, verses 2 through 3 in support of that proposition. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, these are Christian Jews, the leaders in the church at Jerusalem, who were themselves Jewish Christians. Peter had gone up to Cornelius' house, a Gentile centurion, Roman official, and the Holy Spirit fell. A lot of people got saved, and they were Gentiles. Of course, Peter had that vision of all the unclean food, and, G and God tells him, either God or Jesus, I can't remember, he was told to eat all that nasty, unclean food. And the point is, is these uh, uncircumcised Gentiles were clean, and it was hard for these Jewish Christians to believe that. It's interesting, they, they exhibited some of the same attitude of the Pharisees. They always complained about the breaking of the law, but they never pointed to the benefits that, were, that accrued from breaking the law, which, of course, breaking the law was the tra traditions of men. And in the case of Peter, it was the fact that the Old Testament law had been done away with, which the early Jew Jewish Christians had a hard time believing that, hard time understanding that. But the great benefits that came from breaking the law in the case of Peter at Cornelius' house was that there were a bunch of Gentiles entering the kingdom. It was like, oh, you ate with a Gentile. That's what they were focusing on. And Peter's trying to focus on, hey, look, my fellow elders in the church of Jerusalem, there's people coming into the kingdom. In other words, it's more than just for us Jews. It's for everybody. Now, in verse 12, we see that these people who are last, the Pharisees, they're going to be thrown out. They're going to be thrown out. That's exactly what happened in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed them and destroyed their kingdom. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in verse, let's see, verse 28 when they get thrown out. They're going to be, instead of sitting at the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob where there's going to be all kinds of hallelujah feasting, the Pharisees are going to be weeping and gnashing their teeth. Now, Gil's got a good, and, and uh, Adam Clark, too, point out that the gnashing of teeth comes because they were excluded from the banquet hall. And Gil's got a good quote here. The allusion in the text is to the customs of the ancients at their feasts and entertainments, which were commonly made in the evening when the hall or dining room in which they sat down was very much illuminated with lamps and torches. But without in the streets were entire darkness, and they were heard nothing but the cries of the poor for something to be given them and of the persons that were turned out as unworthy guests, and the gnashing of their teeth, either with cold in winter nights or with indignation at their being kept out. John Gill points out that Jews thought the demons in hell gnashed their teeth, and so the Pharisees were going to be accompanying their fellow demons, if you will. We go to verse 31 of Luke 13. At that time, some Pharisees came and told him, Go, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. The here, of course, is Perea, where they are now. I haven't mentioned Perea exactly except to say it's the east of the Jordan. I've got a nice map here, which you can't see, but the Roman province apparently started about mm, one-third of the way down the Jordan River as you go from the Sea of Galilee south towards the Dead Sea. It started about one-third of the way down there and went all the way down to the northern tip of the Dead Sea and then down halfway, going south, halfway down the coast of the Dead Sea. That's Perea. And Jerusalem, of course, is right to the northwest several miles of the Dead Sea. You can see the Dead Sea as you drive out of Jerusalem, so it's fairly close. And if you go due east from Jerusalem, you go down the hill, down the plateau there, and across the Jordan River, and you're in Perea. Now, who was in charge of Perea at this time? Herod Antipas, the same guy that's in charge of Galilee. Those were his two 
jurisdictions. So when the Pharisees came to say, get out of here, he meant get out of Perea. Why would a Pharisee show such solicitous care for Jesus? The Pharisees hated Jesus. Well, the reason was he wanted to get him out of Perea back in Jerusalem where the Pharisees could get their hands on him easier and kill him. That's why. Herod wants to kill you. Oh, yeah, well, the Jews want to kill him too in Jerusalem. And this is why this Pharisee is telling them, get out of Perea, go to Jerusalem. The NIV Study Bible says this, John Gill says this, Adam Clark says this, and out of the mouth of three witnesses, the truth is established. I think that makes a lot of sense. Herod himself might have actually been in on the plot to get Jesus out of Perea into Jerusalem. After all, this is the same Herod who instigated Jewish leaders to kill Jesus, according to Adam Clark. Jesus called him a fox. That seems to indicate he might be a, a part of this plot to get Jesus out of Perea back into Jerusalem. Now, Herod's got a motive for getting Jesus back into Jerusalem. He doesn't want something that looks like a potential rebellion against the Romans to show up. And Jesus has got an awful lot of followers. And, you know, a lot of followers could mean a political uproar, a political rebellion, in which case Herod might lose his job, maybe even his freedom, maybe even his head. So he's sensitive about that. And so maybe he says, we've got to get rid of Jesus. After all, Herod had already killed John the Baptist, who was preaching the gospel of Jesus. Notice this Pharisee coming up to Jesus in prayer. This is not surprising because the Pharisees were not only in Jerusalem, they were in all parts of the country, not just Jerusalem, as John Gill points out. Luke chapter 13, verse 32 and 33. He, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, Go tell that fox, Look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will complete my work. Yet I must travel today, tomorrow, and the next day because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. And so here Jesus says, yeah, I'm getting out of Perea. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm a prophet, and I'm going to get killed because all, Jerusalem always kills the prophets. So he, puts, he replies with sort of a sarcastic, sardonic, I guess, if you will, answer to this Pharisee. He says, yeah, I'm getting out, all right. I'm getting out so I can get killed. But notice, on my way out, I'm driving out demons and performing healings. <laughs> I'm doing the work, and the I'm performing the signs of the kingdom. That phrase, today and tomorrow and on the third day, that's a Jewish idiom means the day and tomorrow means a short time I'm doing something and on the third day means shortly after that short time I will complete my work. In other words he's saying the time to complete my work is finished and what he means by completing his work he means to accomplish his work on the cross. Remember when he said it is finished? It is finished. That means his work on the cross was accomplished when he said that from the cross. And also in Matthew 5:17 he says not one stroke or dot of the law will pass away until all is accomplished. Till all is finished, that means until he finishes his work, and then the law will be of none effect at that point. Now, what are the three main things that Jesus did publicly? He drove out demons, and he healed. And the third thing he did was teach. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't mention teaching here, but he, teaches, he, he mentions healing and driving out demons. And again, I say to you, if we're going to carry out the ministry of Jesus, we ought to teach. Absolutely, that's what I'm doing now, trying to teach. But we also ought to drive out demons and perform healings. Oh, unless you're a cessationist and believe that all the miraculous died, and the only people that can do miracles now are demon workers and witches and warlocks. They can do miracles, but no, we can't. Jesus is our example. He's working to establish the kingdom, and he drove out demons, and he performed healings. Why shouldn't we do the same? Now, when Jesus said, is it possible for a prophet to die, to perish outside of Jerusalem, he was referring to the historical fact that most of the prophets did die in Jerusalem, as John Gill points out. Why was that? Because the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, the ruling council, met in Jerusalem. And they were the ones to whom it was tasked to try and condemn prophets, as John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. 
So most of the prophets did die in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is going to carry on the Jewish tradition. All right, as we move to verses 34 and 35 of Luke 13, we see that Jesus has Jerusalem on his mind. He says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is abandoned to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Now, there's no parallel passages for this, according to A.T. Robinson, but on another occasion, and on Tuesday of the Passion Week, that famous Tuesday, the day of the Olivet Discourse, before that Olivet Discourse, Jesus is saying farewell to the wicked leaders of Jerusalem, and he says this in Matthew 23, verses 37 and 38. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. So it's the same idea. Jesus repeats it. Now, the fact that Jesus is saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together, this lament shows that Jesus might have been in Jerusalem more than the synoptic gospels indicate, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. Now, this statement could have been made in Perea, of course, but nonetheless, there's an indication that Jesus was in Jerusalem a lot more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke indicate. And, of course, those times are, are talked about in the Gospel of John. Gelden Heiss, and forgive me if I pronounced his name wrong, famous commentator, he says this, quote, This is a reference to the fact, as expressly stated by John, that Jesus, especially during the last period of his public appearance, visited Jerusalem on more than one occasion. There is a tendency nowadays, even among the more liberal critics, to admit that the fourth gospel was, after all, correct. Well, of course it's correct. That how often I wanted to gather your children together, how often, that's the often, that's the word that indicates that Jesus might have been in Jerusalem thinking about how he wished he could get the people in Jerusalem to believe in him. So he was in Jerusalem lots of times that we have not talked about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now think of how strange this sounded to the Pharisees. Your house is abandoned to you. That's your temple. It's abandoned. He's referring to AD 70 when the, the temple's going down into flames. Can you imagine what the Pharisees thought about that? The city of the great king is in Psalm 48. The joy of the whole earth is in Psalm 48. This is Jerusalem, and you're saying it's going down? It's going down? Well, yes, it was going down. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that Jesus is not talking about the mere city, but He's referring to Jerusalem as the, as the center of their religious life. Here's the quote. It is the whole family of God, then, which is here apostrophized by a name dear to every Jew, recalling to him all that was distinctive and precious in his religion. The intense feeling that sought vent in this utterance comes out first in the redoubling of the opening word. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem's going down? The precious holy city is going down? Yes, your house your temple is going to be abandoned. And of course, when the temple goes down, the city goes down too. Now notice that he says, Jesus says that he wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings to protect them. He wanted to gather the common people to him. He was not upset with the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But he was upset with its leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders who were the political leaders. Yes, he was upset with them, but not with the population at large. So when he says, your house is abandoned to you, he's referring to the leader's house, the leader's temple. Now, Jesus mentioned that Jerusalem kills the prophets. <laughs> this great city, 
on the side of the north, the city of the great king, the joy of the whole earth. It kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her. The prophets in Elijah's time were killed by the children of Israel. 1 Kings 19.10 He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets. Referring to the northern Israelites under Jezebel. Killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life, says Jeremiah. And, of course, there's lots of other passages of where the Jerusalem killed the prophets, which I won't go into here. I've mentioned them in earlier passages. Jerusalem kills the prophet. And, of course, Jesus is saying, I'm a prophet. You're going to kill me, too. That's what he's referring to, the coming crucifixion. Jesus says in verse 35, You will not see me until the time comes when you say, He who comes in the name of the Lord is the Blessed One. You will not see me. That means you will not understand me as being the Messiah, the Son of God. It's not talking about physical seeing. It's talking about understanding. You will not understand who I am until you say he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, is the blessed one. You're not going to understand Jesus till you admit that he's the Messiah. Now when that happens, it says you will not see me until the time comes when you say this. That time that comes when the Jews acknowledge that Jesus is the blessed one is ambiguous. We don't know when it is. And of course theologians love to talk about, does it talk about in Romans 11 at the end of the time, at the end of the age, end of the world I should say, that all the Jews are going to come in flooding like a time. We we don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. But the point is, if you if you Jewish leaders, if you Jews want to understand Jesus, to see him, and see him as he actually is, you're going to have to call him the blessed one. You're going to have to quit trying to kill him. And so... Now, of course, Jesus could be telling, talking to the Pharisees there who would, be, who would be living in AD 70, and he might be telling them, if you're going to see me and understand me, you're going to have to confess that I am the blessed one before your city goes down. Or he could be referring to Jews all through the course of history, or he could be referring to Jews at the end of time. And as I said, it's not clear when that is. John Gill says it could refer to the posterity of the, of the Jews who will be converted to becoming Christians during the church age. And John Gill says it also could be confer, referring to the Jews who are converted along with everybody else at the second coming of Christ. And as I say, it could also be referring to the Jews who acknowledged Jesus as Messiah when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. We don't know exactly who it is. Now you notice he says, your house is abandoned. Your house. Jesus is referring to Jerusalem now as belonging to the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders. Yours, not mine anymore. He didn't say my house, because that temple wasn't his temple anymore. The NIV for the word abandoned has desolate. Your house will be left to you desolate. As John Gill points out, in 40 years, Jerusalem will be destroyed by the Romans in 8070, and the temple will be left desolate. This is sort of a rehash, a recapitulation of what happened in B.C. 586 when Jerusalem was left, was destroyed by the Babylonians. Jeremiah 12, 7, I have abandoned my house, God says. I have deserted my inheritance, God says. I have given the love of my life into the hands of her enemies. Jerusalem is called the love of God's life, abandoned to destruction. When Jesus says he wants to gather his children under the children of Jerusalem under his wings... Like, like when he wants to gather the children to protect them like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. He's referring to the judgment that's coming on that city. He knew it was coming, and it did come in 87, as Adam Clark said. He wanted to protect them. As a matter of fact, looking ahead, they were protected because all the believers, when they saw the abomination of desolation which surrounded the city, they fled the city. And that was when the Roman general Cestius, I think his name was, 
pulled his troops away from the city, from the siege of the city. And so the Christians in the city saw the abomination which causes desolation, the Roman army surrounding the city, and they were supposed to flee at that point. But how could they? They were surrounded. Well, they withdrew inexplicably. The historians still don't know why. And the believing people of Jerusalem got out and fled to Pella, where they were every last one of them saved uh, from destruction. So Jesus' wish here actually was fulfilled. They were protected from the destruction that was coming. Now, that essentially explains those scriptures. There is one little theological point that I just cannot avoid talking about because Arminians love to make a point about this verse. They say, they say Jesus wanted to gather the children together, but you were not willing. They say, see there? Jesus wants people to come to him, but they're not willing, so they're resisting Jesus' grace. And we know that the Calvinists say that grace is irresistible, that you cannot resist grace, that once Jesus decides to save you, by golly, he's going to save you, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Well, let me just say real quick that that is a misinterpretation of this verse, in my humble opinion, because when he says, I wanted to gather your children together, he's talking about the Pharisees. Excuse me. When he wanted to gather your children together, he's talking about those who wanted to believe in Jesus. He says, "But you were not willing." The you there, he's talking. He's talking about the leaders of Jerusalem, the Pharisees. They obviously weren't. They weren't willing. And yes, they were resisting God's grace. They were resisting God's grace big time. But the, the but the little children gathered under the wing, the the chicken wings, if you will. They were not resisting grace because they were willing to come. Jesus wanted to, to gather them. So that's not an argument for Arminianism, in my humble opinion. Let me give you a nice... Well, there's another thing to say about this, too. Uh, and the point here is that, according to the Arminians, Jesus wanted to save people who resisted his grace. I want to save you. I want to save you, but you resist, so you, go, you, you lose your salvation. You, you lose the possibility of salvation. Therefore, Christians can resist God's grace, and they can submit to God's grace with their free will. That's the Arminian argument. However, this ignores uh, a couple of important points. First of all, Jesus was speaking from his human side. Jesus, as a human, sometimes prayed for things he didn't get. That's the, he's our example. Don't we pray for some things we don't get because it's not in God's will? Jesus actually did this. This is an interesting theological point. Jesus' human will was subordinate to his divine will, but not contrary to it. For example... When Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing, Jesus, God didn't forgive them. He wiped them out in 87. He didn't forgive them, but Jesus prayed that way because that's what he wanted. Father, Father, if it's your will, take this cross from me. Take this cup from me. God didn't answer that prayer the way Jesus asked for. So Jesus in his humanity prayed for things he didn't get. So to say that Jesus wanted to save people who resisted his grace... To say that Jesus wanted to save people who resisted his grace, therefore proves the Arminian doctrine of resistible grace, ignores the fact that God does not want to save people who resist his grace. From the divine side, if God wants something, he gets it, and he, he's going to irresistibly bring people into the kingdom if he so desires. But Jesus, from the human side, he just had a natural desire for people to get saved, just like we do. But you know that... All the people we want to get saved are not saved. It's a shame, but that's the way it is. So Jesus' humanity wanting non-Christians to get saved does not prove that God wants to save people who are resisting his grace. And the other point I've already made is that it's the people actually were not resisting. The people were willing. It was the Jewish leaders who were resisting, and they weren't resisting salvation. They were resisting 
letting the children come into the kingdom. So the analogy is not appropriate. John Gill says, This passage of Scripture, so much talked of by the Arminians and so often cited by them, has nothing to do with the controversy about the doctrines of election and reprobation, particular redemption, efficacious grace and conversion, and the power of man's free will. Nothing. John Gill also has another quote referring to the fact that Jesus is talking from his humanity and not his divinity. He says this, This will of Christ, to gather the Jews to himself, is to be understood of his human and not divine will, is manifest from hence that this will was in him and expressed by him at certain several times by intervals, and therefore he says, How often would I have gathered, etc., whereas the divine will is one continued invariable and unchangeable will, is always the same, and never begins or ceases to be, and to which such an expression is inapplicable, and therefore these words do not contradict the absolute and sovereign will of God. Well, that's some deep theology if you want to get into that. If not, forget all this. Hope you enjoyed this audio. We'll take up Luke chapter 14 in the next audio. The next audio, which will cover Luke 14 verses 1 through 24, is given this head by A.T. Robinson. While dining or breakfasting with a chief Pharisee, he again heals on the Sabbath and defends himself. Three parables suggested by the occasion. So we'll take that up in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.